0: free. Hello travellers, I'm Jo Frances Penn and in today's show I'm talking about hidden travel with Steve Brock. Sometimes it's not the most iconic travel destinations that resonate most with us. Sometimes it's the hidden places and the unexpected moments that echo in our memories many years later. In this episode, Steve talks about how we can cultivate curiosity and blend serendipity with planning to make the most of our travels, as well as finding hidden places closer to home and how we can use the different senses of time to make more of our travel experiences. This is about an attitude to travel, a practice that we need to hone over time, as it can be too easy to be swept up into the must-see locations – but they might not be the things that we truly value. I really enjoyed our discussion, so I hope this interview gives you some ideas for finding your own sense of hidden travel. Stephen W. Brock is the author of Hidden Travel, How to Discover More. He's also a photographer and his website, Explore Your Worlds, focuses on the intersection of travel and creativity. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Joe. It's great to have you on the show. So let's get right into it. Why hidden travel? Why did you go with this theme?
1: Because I think that I have found over the years of travel, that some of the most important experiences that you have on a trip, or in life for that matter, tend to be the hidden ones, the ones that don't happen uh, in the big moments, sometimes in the small ones. And so I think that hidden travel, in the book, it explores more than just hidden places, that's part of it, but it's those hidden emotions that you have, the hidden experiences, hidden connections with people and with other types of things, and even within yourself, those kind of hidden longings that you may have that you don't ever get a chance to experience except when you're on a trip.
0: Wow. Okay. so many things I want to talk about there, but it is interesting because you talk, I guess, about um, hidden travel and we'll get into the travel piece, but we're recording this still in pandemic times. And one of the things that I think is keeping me sane is trying to travel in quotation marks more locally to me. So how do you suggest we even find these hidden places closer to home?
1: Well, I think part of it is kind of a key theme of the book. And for me, you know, almost as a life philosophy is this idea of intentionality, that it doesn't come to you without some effort. And a lot of people say, well, I just want to go lie on a beach, right? I don't want to have to work. But I think the fun thing is when you're home, you can actually be practicing a lot of things about travel. You can be honing your skills at paying attention. You can be learning how to explore. You can work on growing your own sense of curiosity So, I think there's a lot of things. So, I just know this that for me, one of the things I found is just all the wonders that lie within a half hour from my home here. So, this last summer when we were in lockdown, we were still able to go outside and go outdoors. And I've done fly fishing, for example, probably started about maybe 10 years ago, but I've only done it maybe a dozen or so times before last year, before that. And then I found this spot on this river where I would start going and I would go several times a week and I would stay longer because I could. I didn't have anything else to do or places to go. And I would discover, for example, 15 minutes from my home, there are on this on this section of river, I discovered one night by staying longer than normal to twilight, there was this family of beavers, this family of river otters, this bald eagle that It made a sound like a Canada goose, which was very bizarre, but very interesting. Are these little salamanders, all these different wonders so close to home I had never seen before. And my wife and I spent a lot of last summer camping. So we live in the state of Washington, the United States here, just uh, near Seattle. And we explored parts of the state that were new to us. And it was marvelous. I had pretty much the same type of experience in my own state that I get when I go on an international trip. You didn't have the language issues or some of the cultural issues, but there's wonder all around us. And it just takes a little bit of effort and a little bit extra time sometimes to find that.
0: I think uh, you're right about the time of day. I think that makes a big difference. You know, whether you go, normally you walk at a certain time of day and then you change that. So you go early morning and there, there might be the bird song or like you said, you stayed after dusk and things start to change. And even going out in the dark, In an area that you know very well, can make things look completely different. So I agree with you that, in fact, the pandemic has almost forced us to look more carefully at the places around us. And I I certainly, I've really got into fungi this Hmm. uh, this last year. And I got this app, and instead of just walking past the same logs, it's like, oh, what is that? And looking it up on the app and trying to figure out what it is. And I I definitely didn't do that before. Like I might have taken a picture, but I wouldn't have tried to identify. Identify what type it was, or um, try to figure out the what the Latin name might be, and stuff like that. So I think that comes down to your idea of a- attention, right?
1: It's both attention, but the thing that is to me the intriguing part about it that I don't think we fully appreciate during lockdown is that that's also a form of practice. So, for example, you're learning how to pay attention to the fungi. And the things that you didn't really notice before so i'd be willing to bet that next time you're on an overseas trip or a bigger trip you're still going to notice those things in a new way and have a deeper appreciation for them even though right now it may feel like kind of well i'm just doing this because i'm in lockdown i have nothing better to do but you're actually cultivating your skills your travel skills so that you can apply those later on so it has multiple benefits
0: Yes, we can be grateful for where we are now, but let's get into the actual travel, which for us is very exciting. So you have a section on start before the beginning, which I love as I'm a real planner. I mean, right now I'm surrounded by travel books that I've bought in preparation for trips. So I'm definitely a planner, but I also try and leave a bit of time. So what are your recommendations for preparing for a trip in one way, but also leaving room for serendipity?
1: Well, I have the belief that planning, the purpose of planning is to provide peace of mind for most people. I mean, there's some people that absolutely just their favorite part of the trip is planning. And I think that's great. And there's other people who think that planning is just a ball and chain that, that keeps them from experiencing things, their own discoveries. I find that planning helps you to deal with the logistical issues so that it frees you up to discover things on your own. There's a book You may have read it. uh, It's called Getting Things Done by David Allen. Oh, And it's really about productivity, right? Mm. Okay. So you remember that part in there where he says, write things down. Because when you write things down and you make lists, you don't have to carry them around in your head. And the more you put things, you free your mind up by putting things down into paper or on the computer, it frees you to pay attention better, back to what we were talking about. So to me, the purpose of planning is to get things down. So you don't have to be thinking about the logistical issues. I just remember a trip to Ireland once where we were just winging it. We didn't make any reservations, and it was just—it was great. But we also spent a lot of times hunting down a and B or a hotel or something like that. Whereas if we had had reservations, uh, you we wouldn't have had that problem. And I think in today's world, particularly, so there are some real kind of key blessings out of COVID, believe it or not. And one of them is. You have freer reservation policies. Not only can you now change your airfare or your airline ticket, but a lot of hotels allow you to be more flexible. That flexibility allows you then to book a trip, but you're not locked into it so that you can actually change and have that flexibility. But the key piece to me is this idea of freedom in limitations, that the more boundaries we have, the freer we actually are. So in my day job, I work in a branding and marketing agency, and we work with a lot of creatives and folks like that. They tell you they don't like to be have these boundaries, but they do much better work. And they will tell you in the end that they appreciate having a very clear, for example, creative brief or, or directions because it frees them up to be more creative. And I think that's the same thing for travelers. The more that we have things kind of in these little categories or boundaries, it freezes up to discover more. But I would say this. Two big things you don't want to do is over plan. So one of the lines in the book I think is really important, which is the purpose of planning is you're not preparing an itinerary so that everything goes well. You're actually preparing yourself for when things don't. So the part of that planning process is just, it's like preparing for a speech or a presentation, right? The more prepared you are, the freer you'll be. But I always say this too. Be willing to cast aside any plan in light of a discovery once you're on the ground, because plans are only a starting point. They're not supposed to be this, you know, confinement.
0: I mean, we do a lot of, well, we did do a lot of long weekend trips in Europe or even within the UK. And you you have to plan because you want mm-hmm. to see certain things. And I in fact, I only learned this week. I was planning on planning a trip to Vienna and everything is shut on a Sunday because it is a Catholic uh, country. And it's so interesting because I just didn't think that would happen because in most places you can go to the museums on Sunday or you can go to cultural things, obviously not the churches or whatever. So I was like, whoa, that is makes Vienna difficult for a weekend trip. You would struggle to do everything. So, and that is that's really important for me to know for planning. But as you say, I also make sure never to do more than one museum or art gallery. <laughs> right. Like My husband's like, no, we go to one. You can take us to one cultural thing, but that's usually enough for the day. And then we leave the rest of it open.
1: Well, there's a thing in the book. It was a little factoid that I came across called the ring, ringing effect. And it's the idea that all systems reach a point where, When they hit a certain number of their capacity, beyond that number, an additional factor that hits the system isn't going to just be a little bit more of a problem. It's going to be catastrophic. So you know this when you have, for example, on a highway or freeway or motorway, you have a traffic backup, right? When it hits 95%, one additional car on that road can suddenly cause everything to shut down. So interestingly enough, that number for human beings is around 75%. So if you plan more than 75% of your day, and this applies to travel, it applies to your work life as well. If you try to plan in every single hour, if you get beyond that 75% mark, you actually are less productive. You get less done because you have no margin. And it's those margins that allow you to make the new discoveries.
0: I love that. And that explains why for most, because I love going to these quite dense cultural experiences, you you know, the museums and the art galleries and places, uh, cathedrals and places like that, which have so much to look at and so many interesting things. And then we tend to do that in the morning. And then we often will just go and lie on the bed in the hotel or whatever in the afternoon for, say, three hours and then go out again in the evening for dinner and maybe something else. But that really explains it. I've never heard that before. That's awesome.
1: Well, and it, and it affects you, you know, obviously, physically, psych, in terms of your emotions, all of that. But the planning piece, back to your point of the reservations, I don't know what we're, the world's going to look like travel-wise after COVID, but I'm hoping that we're starting to see people taking the idea of over-tourism more seriously so that places, let's take Florence, Italy, for example, going to a museum there. You can't get into the Uffizi without a reservation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some places, same with the Alhambra in Spain. There's a lot of places now that you, if you don't plan ahead, you simply will miss out. So part of it is not over planning, but on the same time, knowing what are the things you need to plan for. And that's why, to me, planning isn't always about locking everything down, but it is about knowing what you need to lock down.
0: And the other thing that you've mentioned, curiosity as, as a practice, and to me, this is so important, but it's also something that I think people... Almost need to train and to be more honest, like you talked about hidden emotions. So I, I admit it now, but I really love graveyards, like Pere Lachaise in in Paris, or when I came to New Orleans in the U.S. I, the first thing I did was go on the graveyard tours, uh, mm. and I love cemeteries, I love catacombs and crypts. And I used to think, oh, oh, I mustn't mention this or go that way because people will think I'm weird. Of course, now it's in all my novels, but it's it's so interesting because that curiosity was almost something I was trying not to acknowledge and now I that's what I do put in but how can people tap into their true curiosity instead of just okay here's another tickless destination that I'm not that interested in
1: well it starts with knowing what it is that you actually love and believe it or not most human beings don't know what it is that they really deeply truly love we are at least in where you and I are in terms of the United States, UK, Western Europe, we're so keyed into distractions that we don't really know what our deep passions are. So to me, part of the opportunity of COVID is to explore those things that really move you and find out what those are, or at least to get hints of those so you can then explore those more on a trip. So one of the ways to do that is to think of a trip As a learning laboratory. So you have this opportunity to explore your interest. I uh, talked to one person who has a friend who, what she does, she loves roller coasters. And so she plans all of her trips around amusement parks around the world. And you think, okay, well, that's a nice little hobby. But the fun thing about that is that she has connected now with this entire community of roller coaster aficionados, and she has found her tribe if you will. And so part of it has led to not just new places and destinations, but that curiosity has grown into relationships that she really treasures. And she has some great friends as a result of that. So one thing I think it's important for people to remember is that curiosity is not the same for everybody, nor is any single person curious about everything. I may be curious about for example, history type of things. As you are, you're curious about cemeteries, but I don't really, I enjoy learning a little bit about biology or physics or things like that, but I'm not as curious as a scientist might be. So know what it is that you're curious about. Use your trip as a way to explore that curiosity because it gives you the freedom to practice things you would not do at home. So I may take a cooking class on a trip that I would never take at home, or I may explore a new type of physical activity like kayaking on a trip that I just wouldn't do at home. So use the freedom that you have there from the routine to not only spark that curiosity, but to pursue that curiosity.
0: I, I agree with that. And it's interesting because when I was researching pilgrimage before I went on a, a recent trip uh, for, to Canterbury from London, walking pilgrimage, and I, I read this, and there's no, it's kind of anonymous, um, but it's stranger, pass by that which you do not love. Hmm. And that kept coming back to me as I was walking. It was like, oh, I meant to love walking in the English countryside, for example. And I, it was very nice. But actually, I love being in Gothic cathedrals, and I love Gothic architecture, and I love religious relics. And although I enjoyed the walking in the English countryside, for me, the highlights of my pilgrimage were these man-made sort of memento mori and and gorgeous architecture. And it's, it's admitting that what you love might not be what other people love as, as you say like you mentioned that person with the roller coaster. it's like I, I, I just not interested in that right. at all right. but it's great to do that and as you say there's a, a community though there, there is always a community of people who will love what you love but often it's not your partner or your children or your Correct. in real life friends is it
1: now in fact there's a line in the book that to me is one of the key things which is the worst day are the worst place with the right person can be amazing and the best place with the wrong person can be a nightmare, right? So Mm -hmm. your traveling companion can really affect how you travel and how you experience it. So you really have to work a lot of that stuff out before you go to know what your interests are. So there's a couple of things that you can do. If you have different interests, you take turns right? So you and your husband, he may not like the museums as much, but you don't spend all your time in a museum. Half the day you do, half the day you don't. You take turns or you go your separate ways. Nothing ever has to be that you have to spend 24 hours together with a person on a trip necessarily, except for maybe in some really kind of really uncomfortable or unsafe type of places. So you can do different things like that. But going back to your trip, your pilgrimage walk, one thing back to your first question about hidden places I would say this, if I recall right, the two most meaningful experiences you had on that trip were at the beginning and at the end. So one was that kind of, it was what, a wetlands type of place near the industrial area that you came across?
0: Oh, I'm I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, the thing about it is that to me was a perfect example of a hidden travel moment, which was you had no idea before you started that place existed, and yet it resonated with you in part because of what you had just come out of in terms of the the commercial industrial space. It was kind of gritty and kind of ugly. So you appreciated it more as a result of those circumstances. The last one, if I recall, was that moment, I think in Canterbury Cathedral, where you were sitting there before the service and watching them kind of practice and just kind of that moment. So you had all the factors going for you, of the things you love in terms of the architecture, the space. You had a sense of accomplishment of of having made the walk, and we're sitting there now enjoying kind of, if you will, the fruits of that. So all those things come together, and knowing what those things are, and still being surprised by them, that to me is the wonder of travel, is you can orchestrate the fact that you were in a, a, a cathedral, which you like, but the moment itself still surpasses everything. So that's a great, to me, hidden travel moment.
0: Mm. Well, and you've done a wonderful job of picking up one of mine. (laughs) But I wonder, what about you? You've got these hidden places at the end of every section Mm. in the book. Any particular hidden places or, or hidden travel experiences that stand out for you as part of your research?
1: Well, there's some. Actually, the most important, the most meaningful ones are ones that are not in the book, simply because they're too private. They're going to be things like when I lived in Germany, being on a train invited to stay with his family for a long weekend in Switzerland or being invited when I was in Turkey, weird set of circumstances uh, being invited to meet one of the top photographers in Turkey and invited to his home, which is literally a cave on the side of this cliff that overlooks this amazing valley and everything in his house is you know, handmade artworks and stuff. So those things though, those stay private because you don't want to share those with others. You can't, but in the book, I think one that resonates, this is books and travel after all, right? So Mm. there was that example when this is probably a decade ago, we were in Scotland and we went to dinner at this for us, right? As Americans, the traditional Irish or Scottish, in this case, pub, we had a wonderful dinner there. And that was fun just in doing that. And then You'll appreciate this one, Joe, because we went out afterwards. My my dad was with my parents, my two sons, my wife and I. My wife and my mom stayed in the pub. My dad, my two sons went to explore the little town of Glamis. There's not much there, but they have this beautiful cemetery. So it's twilight, or actually just after sunset, and we're exploring the cemetery and we come across this uh, area, a sign that said Saint Fergus's Well, and we go over there, and there's this. I mean, it's this little tiny spring, this little pool of water with this metal cup on a chain hung next to it, and it's surrounded by these stones that are all kind of moss covered. And it's just what struck me is to anyone else who looked at that goes like, okay, that's a bunch of rocks and some water. To me, um, I grew up, I worked as a, a professional magician through college, and I got the love for doing magic when I was in middle school or before high school. And I remember reading the book. The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart, which is about Merlin the Magician. And I pictured his, I have these memories of this book and this place, this crystal cave where he lived. And when I see this little spring, this well, St. Fergus's well there in Glamis, it just completely brought me back to that scene. I thought this is what the crystal cave must've looked like. So I had that moment, which you'll appreciate, which is that connection between our interior life and our exterior world. And that all came you know, rushing together. Right then, and I think those are the type of moments that resonate most with us when those two things connect.
0: That is really interesting because you've chosen there, and I can imagine this. I, I mean I've seen many of these ancient wells in in Scottish locations or English locations. These are not particularly dramatic situation but you had an emotional experience there and like you you mentioned my experience it, it was called crayford ness and it's an ancient salt marsh that even the romans and before that the ancient british tribes would have walked past and and uh, these moments of emotion and what's so interesting so you're also a photographer and you mentioned this other photographer in turkey i wanted to take a picture at Crayford Ness of this salt marsh and I tried and it just did not match the emotional uh, thing in my head and did you have the same experience with this well and that there is absolutely no way you could have taken a photo that reflected your experience
1: the uh, my editor of the book because the book has a number of photographs throughout her comment was don't you have a better photo than this one for this while? And it's like, no, actually, I don't because I was too caught up. I just, I was doing it for documentary purposes at the time, not to try to get a great picture because it's exactly what you said. You get so caught up in it that you don't, you can't fully capture the emotions of it. So I would say that, yeah, most of the places that have mattered most to me, I have really bad photos of or no photos of because you can't you're you're not even thinking. It's like food. I never, I'm a terrible food photographer because I'm already three quarters of the way done with my meal before I think, oh, I should have taken a picture of that. But (laughs) I'm so interested in eating that I don't think about it.
0: I, I do. We do um, occasionally do these sort of degustation menus, you know, where you mm-hmm. have a sort of mm-hmm. 10 courses or 12 courses with matched wines. And often the earlier ones, I have these beautifully, because they're, they're art, each course is art. And I'll take a photo and then by the fifth course and the matched wine, the photos have just disintegrated. Right,
1: right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Into nothing. Yeah. But I think that's okay because again, to me it's all about the moment, right? And so that's why you're enjoying the moment there, and do you have to document it? I had someone once told me this that actually it was John Medina. He is the author of the book Brain Rules. So he's this molecular biologist who has done a lot of research in into ter- terms of neuroscience and how the brain works and how we think about. It. And he says that we were talking about you know my book and and travel and and kind of these moments, and he was very straightforward about it saying is it is very very difficult to completely enjoy a moment and curate it for an other audience at the same time and what's point was as a travel writer or any type of writer or a photographer is it's very difficult for you to experience and enjoy that while you're thinking about how can i use this on my blog or for a magazine or whatever right so it's that it's always going to be that that trade-off between capturing it for others versus just enjoying it for yourself
0: yes and that's so interesting as well because the the other moment you mentioned on my pilgrimage that the even the sung even song the practice we you don't take photos in a religious setting like that during that And, and again I don't have any photos but also video it's interesting I did try once and my husband we were in Jerusalem and I was like can you can you video this and he did and but I just didn't like I didn't in, I didn't want to, as you say, I didn't want to be turning my own gaze into what someone else would see through a camera later on. I wanted right. to sink into it myself. And I do take a lot of photos for, for my own, like the fungi, for example. <laughs> I don't <laughs> share a lot of those photos because they're not great, but I take them in order to remind me later and find out what, what it is. And so it's very interesting, but you are—you're obviously a photographer, and your your wonderful site, Explore Your World. You have a lot of photos, and you do. So, how do you balance that between obsessing uh, around making things look nice and doing Instagram and social media, and then, or, or even using images to go deeper into a place?
1: Well, actually, I was near you to me, relatively near. Dorset is nearer to Bath than Seattle is, so I'll call yeah, that's it true. Nearby. <laughs> I did a, a photo tour with Charlie Waite, who's one of the top landscape photographers uh, there in uh, the UK. And he we were talking about that, that very issue about how people say is like, well, you just don't experience a place when you're looking through the lens. And he said, no, it's, it, it's the exact opposite because a good photographer is going to take a lot of time before he or she ever snaps the shutter release. To see the place and to really get to know it well, and so an example was on this this photo tour with him. Um, we went to this place that's like this tree tunnel, you know, road going through you know all the mm-hmm. different trees. And after about thirty minutes there, I thought, okay, I've I've exhausted every possibility here, and we stayed for another two hours at that <laughs> place. Right, and I'm just this is crazy. What am I going to do for two hours here? And what he was teaching me was that. There's so much more to see than the initial cursory glance can capture, and sure enough, a couple of things happened. First of all, I started seeing the area outside the tree tunnel and the surrounding fields and everything, and realizing there was beautiful things there. And then, by being there for an extended period of time, I was there when this lone bicyclist came, you know, speeding down the road there through the street tunnel, and it made for a far more interesting photo than it had. I just stuck with the original ones that were just about the trees themselves. So all that to say is I think photography with intentionality can can be great. I think that photography without intentionality can actually, yeah. I mean, you can fall into the stereotypes. I mentioned the Alhambra in Spain. I remember being there and this one young woman, I watched her. I mean, I was fascinated with her because all she did was she would just move from scene to scene and then take selfies. So, The majority of everything she saw was technically looking opposite of the scene itself because she's looking toward the phone. So she, I kept thinking, well, she'll come back and now she'll really appreciate the place. She never did. It was all about looking into the phone. So it was just using the beauty of the architecture there just as a backdrop rather than actually appreciating it. So that to me was kind of sad. So I think you can do it, but I mean, everyone has a different, you know, what their interest is there and their reason for being there. So I can't say that was bad. It was just bad for me because to me, she never got a real sense of the place itself.
0: Whereas I went to the Alhambra and then wrote a fight scene there. Oh.
1: <laughs> ah
0: because I like in my book Gates of Hell that's set mostly in Spain and um, lots in Granada and Barcelona and places so yeah it's funny I, I and I have a lot of photos gorgeous place obviously not, but architecture a lot of my photos are architecture to be honest which uh, because it's so beautiful and I find it very hard to describe in words so that right. kind of helps but I did um, just coming back on the sense of time there so you mentioned the two hours in that one place and you do have a whole section on aspects of time in the The book, and this is something I think about a lot at the moment because in this pandemic time is really weird it feels like it's been going on forever and yet also time passes swiftly and I do measure my life also by the photos in my I do a photo book every year and it's like when as we're recording this and towards the end of February 2021 I've got barely any photos of this year already and it's like what has happened to my time every day seems the same so how do we use that weird sense of time in in traveling and and has that that happened to you too? I, I guess.
1: Oh, it totally does. In in this last year is I don't think anything can quite compare to it because you're right. It on one hand, COVID years are like dog years. you right. One just feels like seven years for everyone. On the other hand, it seems like where did 2020 go? So I don't know if there is an equivalent anytime time else in our history of that. But I know on trips when you travel, the tra- time can be actually one of the most hidden factors in a trip and we don't think enough about it i believe so to me the kind of breakthrough moment was understanding the difference between what the greeks ancient greeks used to call the kairos time versus kronos time so kronos is what we're used to it's time in a quantitative sense like minutes and hours kairos is a qualitative sense so when you say like what time is the party that's kronos but you say did you have a good time at the party that's kairos And for me, the shift is on a trip or even during COVID is trying to relentlessly, because it requires discipline to do this, is to shift my own mindset out of Kronos and into Kairos so that instead of saying like, oh, I only have two hours in this one place, instead I start thinking, I may not have a whole lot of time, but I can use this time to discover or experience a moment here. There's that great line I love, uh, Cesar Pavese, the Italian poet who says, we don't remember days, we remember moments. And I think that's really true. And so how do you shift from watching your watch or the clock to thinking in terms of moments? And what's been really helpful for me is the book, The Power of Moments by uh, Chip and Dan Heath. It's a business book, but I found it to be one of the best books on helping me to uh, appreciate time in a different way. So it's about how to basically create these defining moments. So an entire chapter in the book is devoted towards taking their principles and applying them towards travel. And it's been one of the most transformative things I've done with trips is learning that you can not only just experience these defining or magic moments, you can actually create them. And uh, there's an example that I give of a trip with my family to Italy and Slovenia, where we did that it's pretty amazing. And it's really simple real quickly Four four factors that they list in the power of moments. And it's like a defining moment. The characteristics are number one is elevated. So it's different from your daily routine. So travel, any type of thing on a, tra- on a trip is pretty much elevated. Number two, it's a moment of pride or accomplishment. So you, you did your marathon, right? And so that's a moment of accomplishment there. Uh, a moment of co- a connection where you connect either I find it not just with others, which is their intent, but I think it could be a moment of your with your interior life or with others or with a place. And then finally is a moment of insight where you have this aha moment of you learning something. And that ties back to what we're talking about with curiosity and your interest in the well. So if you you can actually try to create these moments of elevated accomplishment, insight in connectivity or connection on a trip, and it just makes everything in that place even better.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And, and that is, that is the problem with, I think, this, this COVID year is, is the lack of moments and it, it, because it almost has to be an active process. You know, it's as, as you said, going in and fly fishing or you've actively chosen to do that. Whereas I feel like so much of this year is a, is a passive, uh, consumption of like Netflix everyone's watching a lot of Netflix or, right. or this really? you know of, of something to fill some time when we might normally be doing something else and I think that active participation and the active choosing of those moments is is so important but we're running out of time I feel like I could talk to you forever but you mentioned one book there The Power of Moments but this is the books and travel show so apart right. from your own book what are a few other books that you recommend about Travel. What do you love? What would you recommend?
1: Well, one of the the nicest compliments I've had so far was by a reviewer of the book of my book, where they said it's like a combination of Ralph Potts' book, Vagabonding, and I I, I have no idea how to pronounce his name correctly, but Alain de Botton. uh, Yes, you know (laughs) the art of travel. (laughs) Yes, the, the art of travel. How do you pronounce his name?
0: Alain de Botton. Yeah.
1: There you go. Thank you. Okay. So those two books, *Of Vagabonding and The Art of Travel, have their classics to me in that sense. So those are obvious ones. A more contemporary one is Rediscovering Travel by Seth Kugel. And that one gets at kind of why you would either hate or appreciate this one, Joe, because I'm like you, I'm a, more of an introvert and travel has really helped me to uh, realize that what Seth mentions in in Rediscovering Travel is that, that a lot of times the best travel moments actually are those that you encounter when you meet others and things like that. So it's really a lot about that. So it's been encouragement to me as well in that area. I think another one that's really good during COVID is Alistair Humphrey's book, Micro Adventures. Do you know that one?
0: Yes, and Al has been on the show.
1: Well, there you go. So I just think that that has been the fact that he can turn any type of you have five hours, you have one day. Great. Make a micro adventure out of that. I think that's really useful during COVID. And then beyond COVID, I would say there's an entire series of books called the 500 Hidden Secrets series. Mm. And these are 500 Hidden Secrets of Bruges or or Paris or London. So they have a number, 30, 40, I guess now in the series of those. So from a hidden travel standpoint, they really do kind of get at some of the hidden places and experiences there. So those would be probably the ones I would recommend. And then from a just travel writing standpoint, anything by Pico Ayer, I think uh, I would recommend. I just love his writing. And he can make his latest book on, on Japan, living in Japan, is he lives in a suburb. So there's nothing stereotypically mystical and magical of the Japan that we think of as, as tourists that he writes about. And he still makes it fascinating.
0: I actually have that book. Uh, I was just looking for it in my room which is it has books everywhere, but I I have that book on Japan. So <laughs> because I was going I'd planning a trip to Japan this year in search of these monks who self-mummify, which I just I'm uh, obviously not in modern times. In ancient times they would self-mummify by eating this type of sap uh, over time and then sitting there and kind of waiting to mummify and I'm like I have to go find these these dead monks. That's very cool, but of course that trip is off this year. But again, that's Example of tapping into what you love, I guess.
1: Well, I, I was gonna say your research trips are to me one of the best examples of a trip with a purpose. I would just wrap up and say the key aspect to me of hidden travel is this idea of using travel not as an end, but as a means, right? Too many of us think of travel a trip itself as, well, that's the end. That's what I'm going for. But your research trips are a perfect example of like, no, it's a means to an end. The end is is the book. You're using travel to do the research on it. And I think because you have a purpose for that trip, you're actually gaining more out of it and gaining more about the country or the place as just a traveler because you're going as an author as well, that combination, you get the best of both.
0: Oh, well, that's great. And let's hope we're both back out there in the world soon. Yes, (laughs) indeed. So where can people find you and your book and everything you do online?
1: So the main site for everything is Explore Your Worlds, plural, exploreyourworlds.com. So it's about the world in you as well as the world around you. So hence the the plural and worlds. And there is a subsection there for hidden travel, where you can find out about the book or Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Most of the places, at least here in the United States, are getting it. The book, uh, yeah, it should be available there, and then other places over time. But at least for now, I know that it's on Amazon.
0: Uh, well, thanks so much for your time, Steve. That was great.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jspencom forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.